Welcome to Wonderland, where we explore the connections between pop culture, human nature, and social change. I'm Tracy Van Slyke. And I'm Bridget Antoinette Evans. Okay, so who are we? You'll learn more about each of us later in the season, but for now, the important thing to know is that Tracy and I are culture change strategists. And that means that we use a long-term, multi-layered, strategic approach to create profound shifts in the thoughts, beliefs, and behaviors of mass audiences. Basically, we use stories and pop culture to change the world. The shows we binge watch, the music we listen to, the sporting events we follow, the characters and books and movies we fall in love with. All of this is pop culture. And we love this stuff. But as we all know, the narratives we're hearing and seeing are not always so great. A lot of the time, they're downright harmful. I mean, sure, there are examples of great television shows. But there are a ton more shows that are perpetuating really harmful narratives. I mean, there's Homeland, where Muslims are seen almost exclusively as terrorists, or Law and Order, where women are constantly being killed off, or girls, which somehow managed to show New York City with basically no people of color. We could go on and on with these examples. Narratives like these have repercussions for what happens to people, especially people who are already marginalized. The stories we tell impact how our communities are treated and the policies that are passed, and even who gets elected. Yeah. Make no mistake, pop culture was a major driver in the 2016 election. So, what if we could raise the bar for these stories? We need great stories that we can get lost in, but we also need better stories, more complex stories, more honest stories. So we come to understand each other better, because that's how we create a better future for everybody. And this process is what we call culture change. We go about changing our stories so that we change our ideas so that we can change our world. And to be clear, culture change isn't just a random evolution that happens without our say or some pie-in-the-sky ideal. It's actually a field of work. It's serious. And we're going to dig into it and learn all about it here. Our teachers are going to be a group of brilliant experts from wildly different fields. It's a lot of fun. We'll talk to everyone from neuroscience to Hollywood, from journalism to movement building. And to get us started, we're going to do something a little unexpected. We just gave you this impassioned speech about how it's possible to change our culture, right? So now we're going to hear from an expert who's not so convinced. My name is Alyssa Rosenberg. I write Act 4, the column about culture and politics for the Washington Post's opinion section. Alyssa is worth listening to. She writes a lot about television, and she knows its history in and out. And she thinks a lot about how TV influences are thinking about issues like police violence or marriage equality. And she really gets the entertainment industry. Here's how our conversation with Alyssa started with her very first TV press tour. I went to the Television and Critics Association press tour in California. This is this twice annual event where networks present their old and returning shows. Bob Greenblatt, who runs NBC, was presenting. It was his first time at TCA. And I asked, there had been some success with more diverse shows. Would you ever think about revisiting a concept like Living Single, which is sort of Friends before it was Friends. It starred Queen Latifah. It's great. It's funny. It's definitely better than Friends. It is so 
nice to be able to take a relaxing bath and just wash away all of the anxieties of the day. Hey, Jane, you've been home all day. And it was nice. Don't ruin it. So, which one of y'all's making dinner? Y'all on your own. I'm going out with Scooter. Ooh, you two having a great time, aren't you? I always do. Just chilling with my buddy. No mind games, no manners, and no makeup. Oh, hell, you can be ugly with us. <laughs> And I got sort of laughed out of the room, right? This is 2012. And people, I think, sort of felt like that was ridiculous. So, Alyssa, I just want to lay into that date real quickly. You said 2012. But now some TV networks are serving niche audiences. And we have streaming services like Netflix that produce amazing shows like Master of None or Dear White People. Is it possible that this means that Hollywood executives are starting to change their thinking around diversity? I think my observations are a lot more pessimistic than that. Uh, There are definitely really interesting sort of high-profile success stories. I think that Netflix is as committed to Orange is New Black as it is is great. I think that Transparent exists is wonderful. I mean, Shonda Rhimes' career is a wonderful thing. Um, But if you look at the numbers in pop culture in terms of who gets to direct television episodes, the, the number of characters in mainstream movies... High-profile examples of things that are great and wonderful artistically and politically kind of conceal the fact that not very much has changed at all. These shows have mostly not been created by women. They've mostly not been created by people of color. Okay, so you don't think TV has yet made the kind of changes that we need to see around representation. But what about the movies? Do you think that as demographics and the U.S. continue to change and movie audiences get more and more diverse, that movies themselves will have to become more diverse as well? We actually have a pretty good sense of, in the United States, who goes to the movies. There's something called the Theatrical Market Statistics Report that comes out every year. The finding there every year, as long as I've been covering this, is that women are slightly overrepresented in in moviegoers. They buy about 51% of movie tickets, even though we're half of the population. And that Latinos are fairly dramatically overrepresented in terms of being frequent moviegoers. And Latinos are among the most dramatically underrepresented (laughs) communities in pop culture. And so there's this sort of mismatch between, you know, who's on screen and who's buying the tickets there in particular. The thing is, though, American movie audiences are less important than they used to be. You know, American movie studios are thinking more about Chinese audiences in particular, The assumption there might be that catering more to Chinese audiences and making more money with Chinese production companies would produce an increase in major Asian American characters um, in movies that are, you know, produced in the United States. That has not necessarily been the case. I think it's a really complicated moment. And I think that, I mean, I'm all for arguments about, you know, who underserved audiences are, who might buy more tickets, where the new markets are. But... Hollywood's interpretation of those figures doesn't necessarily lead to the conclusion that I think activists necessarily think they will. But there's also, at the same time that television has created more room for sort of smaller, more eccentric series that can draw fewer viewers and still survive, there's much less room for that in movies right now. Now, the success of something like Jordan Peele's Get Out may change that, but it may change it in that Jordan Peele gets to make more movies because he's someone who's proven to bring in a huge return on a small budget. It's not necessarily going to mean that we get more you know, small budget movies that are eccentric and political 
by black filmmakers, right? It just may mean more opportunities for Jordan Peele. There have been all of these cycles where people have said, look at the demographics. Look, Will Smith can open movies. Look, you know, Sharon Stone can open movies. And every time nothing comes of it, you know, five or six years ago when it felt like issues of diversity and representation and inclusion were breaking out, I felt really optimistic that things were going to change. And I think Hollywood's ability to absorb those critiques without changing the fundamental structures of the industry is actually pretty capacious. At the end of the day, this is about how the industry is structured, right? Is there ways that you could transform the system itself such that uh, the demand of audiences for content was a stronger driver of what content ends up on the air than people in studios and networks, you know, who are paid to make those kinds of creative decisions? Someone still has to measure what the audience wants, right? And, like, interpret what the audience says that they want. And so I think that's tricky. Um, I mean, I also think that Hollywood is super cynical, right? And at various points, I mean, the last time we got a profusion of really great black shows was when, you know, Fox was trying to become the fourth major broadcasting network. And when you had the UPN and UPN and WB also sort of scrapping to get into that space that's now occupied by the CW. And that was when you got Living Single and The Fresh Prince. And I mean, you those networks were willing to sort of build their reputations on underserved black audiences. But they didn't necessarily stick with those audiences once they figured out their place in the market, right? I mean, once those networks were established, they felt like they didn't need, they weren't as needy anymore. And so they weren't turning to underserved audiences. They went to those mainstream audiences. And at a moment when you have what FX chief John Langraf calls peak TV, where the audience is fragmenting again, then you see networks be super willing to give Issa Rae a shot, to give Donald Glover a show, to give Aziz Ansari a show on Netflix, right? Like, I think it's wonderful that all these shows exist. I'm not sure I believe that these outlets perceive these storytellers as mainstream storytellers. I mean, there's this dynamic where you can be 15 million people's, like, fifth favorite show, if that means they'll tune in every week, Or you can be, you know, 750,000 people's absolute favorite show. When there are more than 400 scripted shows on the air in a given year, not all of those shows are sustainable. I don't know that Netflix can spend eight or nine billion dollars a year on content for, you know, forever. And so I would not be super surprised if we end up seeing sort of a collapse and a huge contraction in the number of shows that are on the air. And I think that the first thing to go in those environments will be things that are perceived as niche shows. And, you know, again, that niche is heavily in air quotes. But I I don't take for granted that the sort of the economic model of television as it's currently constituted continues to last. I think that what we're seeing now is partially the result of audience advocacy. And I think it's very much an economic play. And if the economic circumstances that enable this moment go, I don't know if there's a way to convince Hollywood to pay attention to that sort of resurgent fan activism. I'm wondering what you think about the influence of politics and, uh, you know, social issues on the evolution of 
television over the last, say, five to ten years, what role is politics and, and that realm of thought having on the content that we're seeing? Or is it the reverse? Like, which come first, right? Um, I mean, well, the sort of the one area where I think the late Andrew Breitbart and I agree on anything is the idea that politics is sort of downstream of culture. <laughs> um, so, I mean, but I think there is obviously a sort of complex interplay um, between politics and culture. You know, I think that something like Scandal was a really interesting response to the Obama era and sort of the unfinished work of the Obama era and set a stage for a certain kind of conversation about sort of women and politics and power and sex and politics. You know, it's not like Scandal could make Hillary Clinton president of the United States, um, nor could any of the, you know, bajillion other Hollywood stars who came out for her. But I I mean, I think that you see a lot of these conversations sort of cross-pollinating. Let's dig into how fictional stories impact people's lives. In October of 2016, you wrote a series of articles for the Washington Post about the representation of police shootings in popular culture. Can you tell us more about this? Sure. And I don't want to, I want to be careful to not to overstate the case. Like, I don't think Hollywood makes police officers shoot people. <laughs> um, so I want to be careful about that. But yeah, this, the idea for the series was something I came up with almost two years ago. And it seemed to me like we were having this, you know, incredibly important conversation about police conduct in America. And we were ignoring just a huge source of ideas about policing because cop stories are one of the most enduring story forms that American pop culture has, right? I mean, if there are two professions that are represented on screen, it's cops and doctors. And there was part of me that thought, just why not go back to the beginning? Like, what what are the stories that Hollywood has told? What are the patterns? And so I just started watching and reading kind of everything I could get my hands on back to the silent films of the 19-teens and 20s because both Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton made stories about the police Police shootings used to be taken incredibly seriously in pop culture. If a fictional cop shot somebody, it was a tragedy. It was taken really seriously. And then that just sort of starts to disappear in the 70s. And you get figures like Dirty Harry, who basically just exist to murder people, right? The argument is that the system doesn't work. Some people just need to be put down. Um, And crime rates did get incredibly high in the United States, and pop culture was responding to a real phenomenon and a real sense of fear. Um, So just a note here that Alyssa is talking about crime rates in the United States that rose steadily through the 80s and peaked in 1991. But since then, crime rates have been cut in half. There's a report about this from the Brennan Center for Justice that we'll link to on our website. The idea that crime was really high never quite went away in American pop culture, even though crime started to decline. And the truth is the idea that crime is high is narratively useful for Hollywood. And it's politically useful for people like Donald Trump who want to paint American cities as these sort of post-apocalyptic hellscapes. And so that was part of, I mean, just watching how the stories Hollywood told changed was very interesting to me. But almost even more interesting was talking to cops about how they perceived American pop culture. All of the cops I talked to and cops I heard from afterwards felt really ambivalent about the depictions of their jobs in pop culture. They hated, for example, that cops who shot people in pop culture were presented as 
sort of calm and cool and collected and action heroes. Um, most cops never even unholster their weapon. Um, they felt like pop culture just created this expectation that was not related to the actual circumstances of their work and that created expectations for how they would make decisions that were impossible to meet. It's a, The expectation is both heroic and unrealistic. And so to a certain extent, pop culture tells the story about policing that isn't helpful either to the general public or to the police themselves. And that's a really fascinating thing, and I don't know how we get around it because these stories are narratively really compelling. Like, I, you can feel any way you want politically about cop stories in America, but just as a durable, dramatic structure. I mean, the depictions of crimes appeal to what Americans find entertaining about crime, not sort of what's realistic about crime. Alyssa, can you talk about what you learned about how these stories are affecting audiences? Have you guys heard of the CSI effect? Yeah, explain it, please. So the CSI effect is this idea that television shows where cops employ technology to solve crimes have given audiences sort of unrealistic expectations for what the police can actually do. And, you know, that's something that, to a certain extent, actually makes it harder for cops to um, obtain convictions because if juries expect that there's always going to be a 100% DNA match between crime scene evidence and a criminal, they're more likely to say, well, without that, there's reasonable doubt. You know, interestingly enough, Hollywood played a role in both sort of propagating Miranda warnings and in preserving them when there was a legal challenge to them. When Jack Webb started the remake of Dragnet, it was, um, I think it was 1967, so it's a year after Miranda, and he wants to include that on in the show, so he asked the LAPD for their specific wording of the Miranda warning. And the Miranda warning is not actually like a standard. The Supreme Court has not held that you need to use specific words to warn people of their rights. But because Dragnet used this formulation, that's sort of what everyone expects to hear. Somewhere in the last 40 hours, while you were rattling around in the bucket, you got the word. You know that 62 Cal 2nd 338 states that you'll be advised of your right to remain silent and that you must thoroughly understand and waive that right because if you don't, any confession you make is inadmissible as testimony in a court of law. Forty hours ago, you confessed what you did to that little girl. That was the truth. Now you sit here and tell us that you didn't understand your rights. That's a lie. And when there was a challenge to the Miranda warning that got to the Supreme Court, the late Chief Justice William Rehnquist said in his decision that one of the reasons they had to preserve it is because pop culture had given American audiences the expectation of the Miranda warning. And so it was hard. It would There was a sort of cultural problem in taking it away. Like it would create problems for officers who were trying to, um, to arrest people. From a social justice perspective, organizers may hear this and assume that television can influence the culture at large. It feels like there could be a lot of power for movements if they found a way to deliberately intervene in television. This makes sense, right? But we were really curious about what Alyssa thought. I think one of the things that makes it really hard for sort of partisan or nonprofit organizations to operate successfully in the culture space is that the clarity of messaging that funders tend to demand is not necessarily compatible with really good storytelling, right? No, no, yeah. You know, I mean, if someone has $50 million and wants to spend it on climate change storytelling in pop culture, they're probably not going to like, for example, the story that 30 Rock did about 
you know, NBC executives trying to do like a green initiative and looking sort of ridiculous while doing it, right? But I mean, that's a really funny episode of television about sort of corporate cynicism around movements. Um, You know, in the same way, like, I totally wouldn't blame the folks involved in Black Lives Matter if they were not particularly interested in an episode of television that's about a police shooting that's like super sympathetic to the officer involved, right? (laughs) Like that's, that is not on message. And so I, I think I found that I'm more interested in conversations about art and politics that are not necessarily about whether a movie or a TV show is politically compliant in some way, but whether it creates that space for us to express emotions and talk about ideas that the political system really doesn't. Alyssa, you pointed to something that I think um, is worth noting. I think that when we look to stories, and certainly the social justice sector often looks to stories to popularize a very concrete idea or message, but the role that stories play in helping audiences to have a profound, juicy, satisfying emotional experience around these issues is equally important, and if not more important, right? So I just wanted to see if you could speak more about this other space that stories do actually work on us that is beyond our ability to take a concrete tactical action. Totally. And I think I think the idea of the concrete tactical action, there's sort of some tension between two things that liberals argue about culture, right? I mean, first, there's that sort of dream idea that pop culture can make you do something, right? That pop culture can make you support marriage equality or, you know, oppose police brutality. But we also sometimes argue against assigning pop culture too much responsibility, right? Like, if you look back to the Columbine shootings, there was this sense that the video game Doom or the music of Marilyn Manson were somehow responsible for that. And... I think folks on the left rightly push back against the idea that pop culture makes you a murderer, right? In part because that gets away from complex social causes. But also, you know, there's a certain wariness about assigning artists responsibility for activating people because that can lead to huge restrictions on artist freedom. And so we sort of can't have it both ways. We can't say that pop culture doesn't make people do bad things, but that it can make people do good things and thus should be designed to do that, right? But then I think that I think that there's a risk at sort of undervaluing the emotional response that art creates as a political tool. And so to take as an example, nobody thinks of Adam Sandler as like a particularly strong force for good on the left, right? We can probably agree with that. And if you look at a movie like I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, there are sort of political problems with that if you're looking at it from a messaging perspective. That's a movie about two guys who are firefighters, you know, one of them is widowed and he's going to lose some benefits that he had if he doesn't get remarried. And, you know, he doesn't have a girlfriend. And so he and his bachelor friend decide to basically fake being a gay couple for the benefits. And from an organizational standpoint, that's super problematic, right? Like you don't want to argue that gay people are going to commit benefits fraud. That undermines all sorts of arguments about, like, the validity of gay couples' relationships, you know, the idea of, like, gay people's honesty, et cetera. 
But what that movie does is it takes these two characters who are maybe like some characters in the audience. They're like firefighters. They're masculine dudes. They're, you know, they're sort of bro-ish. And it puts them in a position where, you know, it lets their friendship be really sort of tender and intimate. And it gets them to a place where they can see why gay couples who they previously sort of disdained would want these things, would want the recognition of the emotional validity of the relationship, would want access to the benefits. And so the emotional space that the movie creates gets you a lot further towards support for marriage equality than a movie that was maybe just about two guys who are actually gay would do, right? Like you've got to think about who who is the target audience for an Adam Sandler movie when I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry comes out. Where is that audience on this issue? Is the most effective way to reach this like Brokeback Mountain or is it a movie about like Adam Sandler and his buddy Kevin James? And so, you know, the movie is not compliant on a messaging level, but it is effective on an emotional level. And that's probably just as valuable. It is a pretty funny movie. I'm not an Adam Sandler person, but it's a pretty funny movie. never thought we would end our first episode with a reference to Adam Sandler. Yeah, no. <laughs> that was not high on my list of expectations. But there's a lot of for us to take away. Yeah, she really wants us to consume television and film more critically to see how all the messages in pop culture have these unexpected effects. I was also struck by her assessment of power in Hollywood and how decision makers in the entertainment industry resist change. She doesn't think it's possible to change the industry at all. But let's think about that. What does it mean for us if that's true? That Hollywood or the entertainment industry can't be changed? It paints a really bleak picture for the stories that are going to be told and for whose stories are going to be told. It means that we're just going to keep hearing more of the same old thing. And that's not working for us. And that is why we're here. Because we believe that change is actually possible. Yes, we do. And so on Wonderland, we're going to show how it's possible. So listeners, here's what's coming up next on Wonderland. This season will be divided into three parts. Part one sets the ground with some of the leading social change innovators in the country. We're going to think about why stories are important, explore how to tell a good strategic story, and figure out how technology fits into all of this. And we're going to learn how to listen to audiences to make sure that all the strategy and storytelling will even work. In part two, we talk to the people making pop culture, the TV writers, novelists, comic book junkies, and those who love them. We're going to learn about the process of creating a story and how movements can collaborate with pop culture creators. So in part three, we expose the power structures in Hollywood to see how everyone from fans to organizers are changing the rules of the industry. We're breaking ground this season. Don't miss an episode. So subscribe to Wonderland on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Wonderland is made possible with support from the Nathan Cummings Foundation, 
Unbound Philanthropy, and the Pop Culture Collaborative. Nancy Vitale produced the series. Destry Sibley is our editorial producer. Duff Harris is our sound engineer. Rigoberta Lara is our research assistant. This episode was recorded at the Awareness Group Studios in New York City. Special thanks to Kevin Plesner, to Azar Alfadal Miranda, and to the Washington Post. Visit our website, thisiswonderland.us, for resources to develop your own culture change strategy. There are photos and videos of our conversation with Alyssa and links to the films and TV shows mentioned in this episode. 